inviting me because it's a good topic, even though it's not my area of research. So I'm really only here as a volunteer who is the one who went out and collected a bunch of data together on this topic to present, to kind of kick off a discussion. My feeling was that I was hearing a lot of things that didn't add up. I was hearing uh, maybe some health researchers and, and uh, other medical people possibly overestimating efficacy of flu shots. I was hearing or reading healthcare workers uh, overestimating their risks, I thought, and uh, different people interpreting things, different kinds of uh, influenza-like symptoms and related illnesses and so on. So I thought, you know, let's just get to the bottom of it a little bit, and I started reading. And the next thing I knew, um, I uh, was invited to speak. But I've only had a couple of days, and I'm not complaining. I'm, I'm, I'm getting my excuses lined up in advance. So let's talk about the news. Hospitals <coughs> should make flu shots mandatory for healthcare workers, journal says. Uh, it's been a topic for 10 years. But suddenly it was in the news. And it was in the news suddenly because the Canadian Medical Association Journal editor wrote uh, his own editorial uh, and published it in, in, in that high-profile journal saying, in no uncertain terms, that he felt that they should do this now, that there was enough evidence now. That was his point of view. And so it's, it stimulated, oh, at least 50 news articles that they could easily find on the web. And a lot of debate and a response from the Ontario Health Workers Union and a response from the BC uh, particularly BC, because that's where it's the biggest issue right now, uh, workers' union and so on. So I, I dug up a few news articles, but then I'll show you a few papers that I think are particularly germane to the, the central issue here. Okay, here's another one. Flu vaccine protects the vulnerable. When healthcare workers get the shot, it makes for better outcomes for their patients and long-term care patients. Oops. I do something wrong. So who wrote this? I was pretty surprised when I flipped to the bottom, and it wasn't somebody like, like me or some of you who just has an opinion to share, possibly based on experience, uh, possibly not. This is the Chief Medical Health Officer for Fraser Health Authority, Vancouver Coastal Health Authority, Northern, Interior, Vancouver Island, you name it. They all got together and wrote this letter. Well, that's fairly impressive. Uh, so I wanted to dig into why there's a controversy. <clears throat> the other side of this controversy will come up a bit later. First, I'll talk about the Canadian Medical Association Journal editor's editorial, what he said, step by step. Now I'll talk about this Cochrane Review. In science, um, particularly medical science, but actually in all sciences pretty well, we have different levels of how sure we are uh, about the outcome of a long line of research, right? I mean, we might have a primary paper on a particular topic, um, effective gamma rays on man and moon marigolds or something like that. You know, you might just one topic work on that. And then there could be uh, subsequent research on that topic. There could be a review of all the research on that topic. There could be a comprehensive review where people tried to get all the for and against and failed and succeeded work. And then there could be a Cochrane review, which is 
a medical, uh, usually a medical epidemiological review that's done in a certain way to cover all the information that's available. And one was done, and it, it also came up with a pretty controversial finding. Opposite from the editor of the Canadian uh, uh, Medical Association Journal. So let's start with him. The controversial editorial that I think started most of the news. And if I'm misreading this, how it happened and what people were thinking, uh, people could correct me afterwards because there's lots of people here who know more about it than I do, or at least as much. Okay, he wrote, healthcare workers must protect patients by, from influenza by taking the annual vaccine. His name is Ken Flegel. He's the editor of the journal, very high up. What did he have to say? Well, first of all, before I go into that, let me just give a little bit of background. Just a few quick slides to talk about the flu. A public health agency in Canada says 10 to 20 percent of the population becomes infected. <coughs> Uh, particularly older people. It's particularly serious for them because of direct impacts, but also secondary impacts, complicating conditions. Complications such as secondary bacterial pneumonia and worsening of pre-existing medical conditions can cause serious illness, and, and naturally this would be different in a long-term as opposed to short-term care facility, I suppose. Up to 20,000 hospitalizations per year of the general population 4,000 Canadians, mostly seniors, are, are judged to have died from flu or flu-related complications each year, usually pneumonia, I presume. So it's a big issue, and right now we have vaccines in Canada, and there's a, the background of this is the big anti-vaccine movement, which, believe it or not, has been going on since about 1850. It's not just Jenny McCarthy and... And, and Jim Carrey and Oprah, and uh, believe it or not, Bill Maher. I was surprised to see him way out on the wrong side. Uh, normally he's right, but anyway. <laughs> but anyway, we have these vaccines. One of them is called live attenuated because the vaccine is a, is a living vaccine, but it's been damaged and uh, uh, hurt so that it can't really cause the disease. That's often done. In fact, even with polio uh, and with other vaccines, there are two ways to do this. But the others are all killed, and they can be uh, injected, or as in the case of flu mist, my boys, my boys were here, they've gone now. They had the shot in the nose, and I had it in the arm. Now, a little bit of history, and this is, in a way, a lot of it is unrelated to our seasonal flu, but just interesting stuff. Extensive pandemics. Influenza or influenza it became the influence of the stars because that's what people thought was the cause of the, of the flu. So, uh, whenever you say the word uh, influenza, perhaps you are being an astrologer. I don't know. Uh, 1918 to 1919, the Spanish flu. Uh, they say perhaps originated. Um, well, it started in France, but who knows where. But some people have focused attention on a particular hospital camp where birds and pigs and uh, debilitated soldiers were being kept together. And they think that there might have been an interaction that generated the Spanish flu at that point. They brought it home. 20 million, some people say 50 million were killed. Uh, when I was an undergraduate, I was fascinated in the library to read about the deaths in Canada. I hadn't heard about it until I was... In my 20s, 
I was reading that in Estevan alone, 15,000 were dead. Unbelievable. It just went on and on. And ever since then, I've had a hobby of stopping at old uh, cemeteries and checking for Spanish flu deaths. I've done it right from Nova Scotia all the way across to BC. Very, very interesting stuff. Because what you see is budded on earth, flowered in heaven, things like that. Because these were 15-year-old, 20-year-old, 25-year-old people who died. Uh, 13, 15, 18. They weren't babies, and they weren't the old. The old had immunity from a previous pandemic. The babies, not, not so much affected. Very strange flu. Okay, Asian flu in the 50s, Hong Kong flu in the 60s, many, many people died. Now, in recent decades, they say 110,000 hospitalized in the U.S. per year, 20,000 in Canada. Uh, you might be combining a few flu-related deaths when they say 8,000 died per year in Canada. Swine flu is a little different, as is human avian influenza H5N1. That's something we don't have, thank goodness, but we do hear about it a lot in the news. So here's an old graph I found. Uh, the number of people dead per thousand from the Spanish flu, 1918 and 1919, this peak, uh, all, all mayhem broke loose, uh, and the healthcare system couldn't possibly keep up. Interestingly enough, uh, personal note, on November 11th, I managed to find the death certificate, uh, well, maybe not death certificate, but the official U.S. Army certificate of death of my great uncle, Ivor Lingard Nelson, December 29, 1918. But Armistice was November 11th, and he's one of the thousands of soldiers that died of the flu after the war was over. Okay, it, the seasonality is quite pronounced. This is from the, the uh, uh, CDC in the U.S. Quite pronounced seasonality. These are weeks of the year. You can see the peaks towards the end of the year. These are deaths uh, uh, from pneumonia in cities in the U.S. You can find these on, on the CDC website if you're interested. Uh, this is the seasonality of uh, pediatric deaths associated with the flu. So months go by, you know, the good, nice warm months when there are almost no deaths, and then plenty of uh, deaths in the uh, fall and winter. So CDC has a graph like this, get the flu shot, not the flu. Get the flu in October, November, avoid the flu in December and January. So it's a, it's a huge push to get people to vaccinate, and it's been a long, long story. And I started to talk about the, the background issue of vaccines. Of course, it's a big topic. A lot of misinformation. Many people uh, tried to stop measles vaccination, downplaying the thousands who, who died or were uh, forever uh, hard by it, and, and playing, playing up the small number of, uh, relatively small number of bad cases. The vaccines back then had problems. Uh, a lot of them were witches brew, particularly polio and had a lot of uh, a lot of negative impacts. Uh, there's been a lot of talk made of glycol uh, and, and, and uh, ethyl mercury and things like that in vaccines, but a lot of it's unfortunately not at all backed up, well fortunately actually, but unfortunately for the people who continue to sing the same song. It's not backed up by science. Study after study after study after expensive study has not shown any relationship at all 
between mercury and autism in vaccines despite the 1998 uh, fraudulent and hence retracted paper by Andrew Wakefield and so on. So that kind of background is probably not what's motivating health workers. I think some people think it is, but I really don't think that's what's on their mind. I think health workers know much more about the topic than that. I don't think they're influenced by that sort of thing. Uh, so the first thing I did was wipe that out of my mind as a possible, as a probable cause. Uh, here's a CDC graph of uh, flu-related deaths going back to the 70s. Just to indicate that this is not a problem that's over. This is not like smallpox being defeated or uh, polio. Polio being defeated was a worldwide effort, particularly in the U.S. Millions and millions of people were involved. Um, and then they had to correct the way they were doing it. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm one of the people who got the oral polio <coughs> vaccine on a sugar cube. Uh, hundreds of kids got polio from that sugar cube. But then, of course, tens of thousands didn't because of the vaccine. But it was a bad way of doing it, and it's since been corrected. My, my best friend and neighbor, Patty, had polio. She was never vaccinated. <coughs> Current flu and vaccine, just a little bit of background, we basically have two types, A and B, H1N1, H3N2. You might hear about that sometime. It doesn't really matter to us here, but the background is that it's kind of a moving target, and they have to make vaccines that are hopefully matched to what's out there. So there's a, a little bit of trouble every year matching the vaccine to the flu. So it's not as simple, perhaps, as diphtheria or some of the other things that have vaccines developed for the virus and so on. Not that they're simple. Okay, Public Health Agency Canada says, and this is their opinion on the topic that we're here about today, immunization pro programs should focus on those at high risk of uh, complications and those capable of spreading influenza to individuals at high risk, i.e. healthcare providers, they specify and those who provide essential community services. I presume the last one is to maintain structure in, a, in case of an actual pandemic. I don't know. So there's all kinds of interesting letters in the press. Uh, Deborah McPherson writes to say there's insufficient evidence to force vaccinations or masks because, for example, in the U.S., uh, eight hospitals at least that I know of, because I read that information from Paul Offit, uh, said, get the shot or you're fired. Um, but some of those softened the approach and said, well, a mask will probably reduce a third of the problem so you can wear a mask. They, they, they waffle on that, so there's some of that, but, but they're saying no, neither one. It's time for BC health employers to withdraw their coercive policy and flu shots, et cetera, et cetera. The latest was the devastating letter in the Vancouver Sun from a representative of the UK-based Cochrane Collaboration, and this is what I'll come to. He effectively shredded the credibility of the rationales touted by Provincial Health Officer Perry Kendall. So this is the debate that's growing. There's two debates here. There's one from the editor. A strong position from the editor of the journal, of the main, main medical journal. The workers on the other side are supported by primarily this one paper, maybe even primarily one author, who claims <coughs> the vaccine doesn't work anyway. So we'll come to that. 
she says Dr. Tom Jefferson ended. It's, it, it's not my place to judge the policies underway in British Columbia, but coercion and forcing public ridicule on human beings is usually the practice of tyrants. So I, I assume he's not speaking as a scientist at that point, <laughs> but he feels very strongly about his paper. Uh, so she quoted him, and it's very interesting because they do have a point. I mean, if there's a Cochrane review that says something's not working, it's probably not working. So here's the interesting letter, or editorial, sorry, from Ken Friedel. Let's look at those points. He says, first of all, Canada, the annual rate of refunds is 5 to 10%, and public uh, health agency figures there, 48,000 deaths attributed to influenza. 55 to 65 of physicians failed to take the annual seasonal influenza vaccine themselves. And he says they are exposing their patients to risk of death from influenza. He says 20% of healthcare workers get influenza. He doesn't give a reference for that. I was a little bit skeptical when I saw that figure. I'd like to know where they got that. I mean, in the U.S., I think they keep track of those figures, but I don't think they do in Canada, although it would be very, very valuable data. He says 28 to 59% of young, healthy adults who get it have asymptomatic or subclinical infections, meaning that they wouldn't know that they have it and they could possibly be spreading it to others. I think that's what he's driving at. Oh, yeah, he does. And he says some of them may shed virus up to a day before symptoms appear. So even someone who's extremely conscientious might accidentally infect, is what he's saying. He says the benefits of vaccination in healthcare workers are clear. Efficacy rates of 86%. I wasn't able to even find where he got that figure, but maybe there's a particular study when the circulating strain and vaccine strain are well matched. And I think he might be... I don't mean to put them down, but cherry picking a little bit, but maybe 15 studies, and when they're well matched, particularly well matched, 86 is what we can hope for. But actually, when I reviewed about 20 papers on this with big studies, small studies, 60% is about the right effectiveness of the flu vaccine, but, but a particular kind of very stringent effectiveness is what they're measuring. They're saying, look, we can't go out and just grab 1,000 people and check to see if they have been vaccinated if they have the flu. What we do instead is we take people who present to a doctor, I'm sick. He checks flu symptoms. If they have at least two, they then do a nose swab and find out if they actually have it with PCR. They actually use molecular biology to determine if they actually have those influenza A and B. So it's very stringent. So they're saying people who come in and they're sick and they say, I have the flu. They find out if they actually do have it. If they actually do have it, they call those cases. If they don't have it, they call them controls, even though they feel sick. Then they check to see if they've been vaccinated. So when they have a figure of 60%, it's fairly, uh, it's kind of a narrow group that they're checking. It doesn't mean 60% of us, which would probably be a different figure. Okay, four trials, he mentioned, show 5 to 20% reduction in overall seasonal mortality in residents of chronic care institutions, which is, I think, the main focus here. Where staff uh, vaccination rates were 51 to 70 in a group that actually had apparently, uh, uh, well, vaccination. 
and three and a half to 32 percent in the control group. So what he's saying is, we don't actually have a hospital where no one's vaccinated, and another one where everybody is. So we're just looking at high and low. And even there, he feels we can detect a difference. Uh, compulsory vaccination regarded uh, as ethically questionable because it violates a person's autonomy. Now, that's debatable, and that, that might end up being the, the foundation for the decision. I mean, that's got nothing to do with science. Um, and I guess we can't really compare it. First, I was thinking, well, when I have, in all my jobs, if I'm told I have to wear a hard hat, I wear the hard hat. I mean, I don't debate the hard hat. But on the other hand, wearing a hard hat is not as invasive is being told you have to take a vaccine. This is one vaccine. What if they were telling me you had to take 20 or 30? I mean, there's a lot of questions involved here. But I have to admit, I've never actually said to my, any of my employers, I don't like your risk and safety guidelines, so I decided not to follow them. Uh, but I, I don't think the healthcare workers are saying that. I think that they're arguing that they shouldn't be required to. And so I don't think... I don't think there's been it's to the point of refusals from what I've read, although in the U.S. they did come to that, and there was a final decision. We'll talk about that in a second. So Flegel finishes, he says, barriers to taking, them and taking the vaccine include fear of getting sick. Apparently this is what people have said. We can get sick from it, we don't want to get the flu from it, or they just don't get the flu and they don't need it. They feel they have personal immunity somehow or they don't think it will work, or maybe some people say it doesn't work well enough. I saw some figures, 30%, 20%, I'm not going to take it if it's only that good. Uh, or belief that the vaccine has been proven, not been proven to protect patients, which the Cochrane Review might even support, but we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, he says all of these reasons to him appear untenable. There's another one too, I mean, there's a side effect issue. I do hear that from people from time to time. I mean the, uh, the mercury and all that uh, business. Uh, there is a complication, uh, a special kind of paralysis, which occurs, but it happens. That they've, they've done huge epidemiological studies where they've you know, counted up the people who have it, the people who don't, and looked at vaccination or not vaccination, and one to two per 100,000 is the rate on both sides. So you, yes, you probably can get this, in certain cases, people are predisposed from vaccination. But it's almost impossible, they say, to detect the difference between that and the, between the difference between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated people. So that's what he has to say. Oh, and this is what it is. Uh, it was significant during the swine flu. 35 million doses resulted in 354 people getting this reaction. 28 of them died. Now, uh, last point to testify compulsory vaccination. He says there should be an outbreak of a serious illness. Immunity levels must be low, as they would be in people 65 and older, 75 and older. In the U.S., they say that, if I, if I remember the figure right, 55% of the people who die from uh, the flu that they've acquired from others, as, as we all do, uh, are more than 75 years old. Vaccine must be effective, safe, and available. So he says these conditions are met. So that's the debate. The debate, I think, where we can actually talk about data is the effectiveness, the safety, uh, <coughs> and so on. 
he points out something interesting. He says compulsory programs for healthcare workers have resulted in participation rates above 95% in Philadelphia. <clears throat> I did some reading and looked it up. Actually, I've read it before. Paul Offit, quite an interesting person, highly, highly qualified. He is also an extremely good writer. If you want to read an excellent book that's absolutely a page-turner, really, on this topic, Deadly Choices is fantastic. He talks about all the vaccines that have been developed over the centuries um, and decades and covers them in great detail. It's fantastic stuff. But what he said uh, that I remember, because it's such an interesting figure, in 2009, eight hospitals in the U.S. mandated flu vaccine. Um, people were given two weeks unpaid leave. If they still refused, they were fired, period. And uh, immunization rates went from 35% to 99.9%. Whether or not it's fair is the debate. And one reason I think they took a hard line, it's the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. If you've got children with leukemia and things like that, um, they need to be particularly careful. In fact, there's some interesting testimonials from parents of children who are immunodeficient or compromised or cancer, chemotherapy, might have to try to find a school where every kid is vaccinated. They can't do it. Because they'll say, well, religion, even a non-religious family can say, well, religion and, and not be vaccinated. Or philosophy, we're into natural things. Or I don't like needles, I don't like anything in my nose either. I mean, there's all kinds of excuses. And if even one or two or three of the kids are not vaccinated, they have to move on and find a different school. Particularly if people send their kids to chicken box parties and things like that. That's death for a child sitting beside them on the bus who's got the kidney. Um, they say, I'm not an MD, so I have to go to look for my advice. Public Health Ontario recently changed its guideline. Participation rate needs to be about 90%, supposedly, to be of value. That's quite high. Okay, here's some replies. I'll just throw out a couple. Uh, these three people, one from Quebec and two from uh, a School of Population and Public Health, UBC, reply to FAGL and say, uh, you know, there's a duty to ensure evidence that is cited as relevant, valid, up-to-date, and without overstatement. And I say here, here to that. That goes without saying, or should. However, oops. However, I'm not positive that they read incorrectly, but maybe they do. They say, we support influence immunization for healthcare workers, but, look like his figures, uh, they feel that uh, he overstated it at 86%. I did a lot of reading. It's true he did. Um, might have had a reason. Maybe he was thinking of a particular study. Uh, like I say, I looked at quite a few. And the efficacy of 59%, 60% is common. Uh, they say the evidence of presymptomatic or asymptomatic infections, people who don't know they have it but can spread it, contribute substantially to influenza transmission, remains scant. I think what they're saying is, yeah, probably that happens. I mean, everyone knows that happens. My grandmother knew that happened. But the data is hard to find. Validity concerns have been raised with respect to studies showing reduction in patient outcomes through healthcare worker immunization. And that's in the Cochrane Review we'll come to. In other words, it's all well and good to say if we 
all get shots, we should protect our patients, but you have to prove that that's true, right? And that's very expensive and very difficult, and maybe that's why it's hard to do. They say patient and visitor turnover is greater in acute care. So that's different from long-term care. That has to be noted. Um, these two other professors from Australia were interesting to me because what they said was just flat out, these are not good vaccines. That's the problem. That's what they say. To enforce, to enforce the manual on healthcare workers seems perverse. Uh, and they point out, which I think everyone agrees, we need better ones. I mean, even if they were better than they are, we would need better ones, I suppose. And I don't have any reason to believe that healthcare agencies are not aware of that. Okay, so I found one interesting study I thought I'd throw out here. This is a paper by Simon Sennel in the Lancet Infection Diseases, infect, infect, sorry, Infective Diseases Journal. Even the, and this shows the background mortality, the, the light color, and then the excess mortality, the little dark colors, in the wintertime flu zones for older people. And it looks like definitely there's peaks they would like to take off. However, when they analyzed the data from 1980 to 2001, from a 15% vaccination vaccine coverage of those people themselves, this is actually vaccination of the elderly, to 65%, they expected that red line, they expected the mortality to drop, but instead it stayed flat. So there's something weird going on. Uh, and the people who say the vaccines need to be way more effective are probably right. So there are many, many papers out there and then strange results like this that are frustrating to people. Uh, I shouldn't have put so much on here, but they say um, age-specific risk of influenza-related mortality increases after age 65 exponentially. People aged 80 years in the U.S. and older are 11 times higher at risk than those in 65 to 69, so it really shoots up later in life. Between 1990 and 2001, 76% of influenza-related deaths occurred among people aged 70 or older. And I think it was 55% for 80 and older, something like that. Now, this is a lot of writing, but there's only one or two lines that are important. These are all new papers. 2012. Estimates of influenza vaccine effectiveness for 2007 and 8 from Canada's Sentinel surveillance system, cross-protection against major and minor variants. The reason I threw this paper in here is if you go to Alberta Health professionals, sort of at the top, the ones who review the research and even do research, and, and ask them for evidence for why they're picking the vaccines they are and doing, one, doing it the way they are, this is one of several key papers that they'll give you, and they've given it to me. Um, in this study, they did nasal swabs. This is a study that I was talking about where they, they called cases that tested positive for influenza were called cases. People who were sick but didn't have the actual virus show up in the lab test were called controls. And if you look down at the bottom, 
which says the adjusted vaccine effectiveness for H1N1 and H3N2 and B was 69%, 57%, and 55% with an overall of 60. So rather than see 20%, 90%, stuff like that thrown out all over the place, I think we should just all say it's about 60% and live with it. In other words, we can't say it doesn't work, it's a joke. We can't say it's, it's hugely effective. You've got to take it. It's somewhere in between. I think that's what we have to live with. That's one minor data contribution here. Another interesting paper. Uh, again, it's one that they respect in Alberta Health, and I think so. And University of Alberta uh, uh, epidemiologists uh, also recommended it to me. Uh, I, I found like 500 of these things just searching PubMed and so on, but it's really hard to walk your way through, but I like to pick the ones that are important to Canada. So they, these people did an actual review. They say, we searched Medline for controlled trials and tried to summarize them all. So this is not an actual study and not an experiment. This is a, a review. And they found 31 studies that were large and well-designed and, and seemed to have everything right about them in terms of respectability. Uh, and they found that the median vaccine effectiveness was around 69%. So even the cases that are high are not that much higher than 60. So those are the figures that I found for people who are interested in that. And then they say uh, interpretation. Influenza vaccines provide moderate protection. Uh, but such protection is greatly reduced or absent in some seasons, and it's not proven for some age groups. So it's murky. It's murky. The people who say it's murky, and that's why we don't want to take it, they might not have a logical point on that last part, but they certainly have a, a factual point. It isn't, it isn't uh, open and shut 100% vaccine. Now, here's the Cochrane uh, review, and I'm sorry I should speed up here. Uh, uh, Roger Thomas, Tom Jefferson, Toby Lasserson wrote this review. They looked at a large number of papers. Influenza vaccination for healthcare workers who work with the elderly. That's spot on what we want to know. What they came up with was there's no effect. No effect was shown for specific outcomes. And the problem is, now the debate about this paper is, they were looking at those people getting those particular influenzas and, and having that influenza as their, their key problem. Uh, fair enough, that's an important thing to know. But it, it's good that they specified that's what they were after. Laboratory proven influenza. So if somebody got sick and, and had it and you couldn't show with molecular biology that that was the same influenza and they actually had it in their nose and they had pneumonia and they, they caught it, then it didn't count. So it's fairly stringent, but good to know. And in fact, what is shown for non-specific outcomes, so for the complications that an influenza uh, could cause, influenza-like illnesses, ILI. So there was an effect for the non-specific, but for actually getting influenza from healthcare workers, they say it, the evidence isn't there. It's very interesting. So that's what spurred these people who wrote the letter I showed you a minute ago to say it would be a great shame if a lack of evidence that meets the Cochrane Cochran Collaboration's narrow evidentiary standard, and it is narrow for good reason, 
were to be interpreted as evidence of lack of effectiveness of influenza vaccination. In effect, the perfect would then have become the enemy of the good. That's what they're arguing. So in my walk through all this data, I, I felt, you know, healthcare workers have a point. This is kind of a, a moving target, really difficult uh, vaccination issue. But in a way, I buy this argument that for now, if we want to prevent influenza-related complications as well, there seems to be evidence for that. It's just unfortunate that it's not an off-and-on switch. It's more of a probabilistic one. Uh, now, their letter is long. Uh, and actually, I brought copies with me if somebody wants it. They say, Dr. Jefferson reveals his own biases in the last paragraph of his letter, whereby he suggests the BC healthcare worker influenza policies practice of tyrants. That was kind of an unfortunate way to put it in writing. Internationally recognized ethicists would disagree. Healthcare workers have an absolute duty to do what, ha what can be done to ensure that they do not transmit disease to those at great risk who cannot protect themselves. And what kind of mystifies me about this whole debate is, I'll bet most healthcare field workers feel that way. And yet as a group, they're against it. So I'm not sure what to conclude. But at least I know a little bit more about the facts now. Although it sounds like what they need are, is more study, and they don't have it. So I hope some of those facts felt relevant to a discussion. It's just a slice of it, but, but they were the two or three most controversial things I could find that seemed to have substance. I'm not a doctor. <laughs> or a nurse. Thanks very much, Nan, for your great interpretation of... Uh, of the scientific aspects of this issue. <clears throat> Maybe we'll take a short break and fill up our coffee or juice or whatever you like, and then we'll have question period, if that's okay with everybody. Just a few minutes, and we'll get back at it. Yes, I... 